Oh, just beautiful, Darla. Thank you for blessing us this morning with song, with song. What a ministry to the Lord, music and, and song. If you would, please turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, and you might want to put a finger in Matthew chapter 17. We'll probably flip there early on. And uh, as we open, uh, the first of what I want to call a series a Christian Sabbath, a Christian Sabbath, and subtitled, The Rest of the Story, The Rest of the Story. Uh, I, for one, I, I'm so grateful for this study through Luke that we've been on. Now we've completed five chapters, looking at the life of Christ and, and how it offers just enormous wisdom as to how the Christian should live. As it pertains to a right relationship with God, we've begun to see that Jesus constantly found himself confronted, confronted with religious error. You know, I I do wish after 2,000 years now that the church would no longer have to deal with this, that we'd no longer uh, have to deal with error, that we would have somehow moved beyond error it is not the case. It just is not the case. Thanks to things like uh, the internet and, and to mass media and productions and television and radio and, yes, your good old uh, social network, today we are exposed to much more errant doctrine than generations before us. It is everywhere. False teaching and fabricated religion, folks. Fabricated religion. You know, it would, it would be marvelous, marvelous, trust me, if a pastor's job only consisted of reinforcing that which is true. You know, if all we had to do is, is just speak the truth politely in love and everybody would appreciate it and, and uh, we could speak the truth and they could say, well, thank you, we will add that to everything else that we've heard. I'll take into consideration that truth and, and add it in with everything else I've heard and, and I'll come to a conclusion on that. Unfortunately, uh, pastors can't get by with that. Pastors can't get by with that. Like Jesus and the apostles, we are also compelled by Scripture to not, to not only reinforce what is true, not only to preach truth, but also to expose that which is false. Scripture says in Titus chapter 1 verse 9 that an overseer or a shepherd of a church must be able to both exhort in sound doctrine, that is good doctrine, and to refute those who contradict it. You have to do both. It's it's two sides of a coin. You can't have one without the other. Uh, You might be a more likable fella as a pastor uh, if you just merely proclaim the truth. But you have to also refute error. Why? Titus says, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Not sordid gain could be fame or money or a following or for pride or whatever it might be. But as an example, just, just of how this works out in a church uh, when we left our study before Christmas. It isn't just enough to teach that fasting 
is a is an expression of mourning and sorrow and, and grieving over the effects of sin or regrets over sin. That is true. It's not enough just to speak of the act of fasting as mourning and sorrow. You also have to refute false views of fasting, such as the act of fasting makes you much more spiritual. You won't find that in Scripture. You won't find that the act of fasting will make you more spiritual. That's what the Pharisees thought would happen. Uh, Another false notion is that fasting consecrates or consecrates, excuse me, personal decisions. We run into this stuff all the time. A a friend may say, you know what, I'm selling all that I own, and I'm going to pack into a van, and I'm going to join a commune out on the West Coast. Religious commune. And and you as a friend might intervene by saying, you know, can we speak about this? I'm not sure that's the right thing to do. Can we just talk first? And the reply might sound something like this. You know, nope. I've not only prayed, but I've fasted. The decision is done, right? Have you ever run into anything like that? Somebody who's going to make a life-altering decision of some kind, and you're really like, I'm not sure that's the best for them, and you try to approach them, and they say, I've fasted about it. (laughs) Someone on the verge of potentially making a horrible mistake instead of receiving loving, loving counsel from friends, uh, they say I've already fasted. That, that's code for, by the way, I don't want your input. I don't want to hear you out. And that is as if fasting somehow provides a, a decision that is sacrosanct, that, that it's impeachable. I fasted about it, it is so. You don't find that anywhere in Scripture, folks. Another errant idea uh, where we're told that to fast for wisdom to make a decision. But, that, but it's crept into society. Um, uh, this idea that, that because you fasted, it mystically makes your decision impeachable. No. How do we get wisdom? James says, you ask of God in faith, and he gives it liberally, without any reproach. Either James forgot or there's no fasting included, right? The wisdom that comes from God we ask in faith. Wise decisions, wise biblical counsel indicates that a decision is in harmony with the Word of God, doesn't contradict the Word of God, and it's confirmed with the counsel of many friends. Proverbs 1 verse 5, the wise person seeks the counsel of many friends. That's how you come to wise decisions. Uh, Decisions made through fasting, they're, they're often employed uh, to circumvent the accountability of both. Not only might my decision go against what would be wise in the Bible, I don't want your input, but I've fasted about it. Very many strange ideas passed down in our day about fasting. You're probably asking, why, why am I bringing this up at this point? Well, it's, it's because I had a conversation this last week, uh, since our last time together, our last time before Christmas, when the disciples were criticized for not fasting. Remember? Jesus and his disciples, they were asked, why don't you fast? Jesus says they can't fast while I am with them. But after, uh, they can't mourn, actually, while I'm with them. But after I'm taken from them, in those days they'll fast, remember? And I was asked, uh, just over a week ago, 
uh, what I make of Jesus' words to his disciples when they inquired as to why they failed to cast out the demon. A man's son had a demon. Matthew 17, verse 21. You might want to flip over there. And Jesus appears to suggest that this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. That is a really superb question. Excellent question. It deserves a response. And let's just acknowledge first that in context, if you're looking there now, the explanation that Jesus provides to his disciples for their inability to cast out the demon, verse 20, it is the littleness of their faith. The littleness of their faith is the reason that Jesus provides to answer the question, why? Why couldn't we cast out the demon? Then you might notice, depend upon what kind of translation you have, which English translation of the Bible that you have, uh, verse 21 might be contained in brackets. Or, verse 21 might have a footnote or a flag note on it that refers you to the bottom of the page. You might even have a translation that omits it. Well, the reason for that is that that verse, verse 21, it's not present in the earliest and oldest manuscripts that we have. In fact, after a cursory reading, I didn't look over all of the old papyri manuscripts and, and get them out of the back closet and look through them all. But after cursory research, it appears as though that statement, Matthew 17, verse 21, doesn't appear any time before 300 A.D. And we've got thousands of manuscripts, thousands of manuscripts. And uh, add to this the fact that Mark verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 29 gives record of this same event, the same event, where this father pleads with Jesus, have pity on my, on my demoniac son. Remember, he's, he's telling me he gets thrown into the fire and, and, and sometimes into the water and the spirit is causing him to convulse and, and the man asks Jesus, have pity, have pity. And in that location, Jesus simply informs the disciples, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. No mention of fasting in that location. This kind does not come out by anything but prayer. So what do I think of it? I think that was an important question. Uh, if I grant that the phrase is original, original to Scripture, uh, which I'm willing to do, I'm willing to do, even so, Jesus doesn't provide any explanation in that passage about the fasting. About the why. So, so you and I can't just add our own arbitrary reason for the fast. We, we can't just make up a reason. Because Jesus doesn't provide an explanation if that passage, or that one verse is original. Um, we can't just make it up because Jesus doesn't provide a definition. But what we do know is that prayer indicates complete dependence upon God, right? Complete reliance on God. And in the Bible, we've studied multiple, multiple times that fasting symbolizes expressions of sorrow, uh, expressions of remorse, and expressions of grieving over the effects of sin. 
My only conclusion can be that in the littleness of their faith, the disciples, this is, the littleness of the faith, the disciples had not sought out God in prayer, nor did they express any heartfelt empathy for this poor boy that was being thrown into the fire. They had, they had no sorrow for him. They, they had no concern. They hadn't sought out God in prayer. So what happened? Their ministry failed. No prayer, no empathy for others. Their ministry efforts failed. Their ministerial services, even as disciples of Jesus Christ, had become an exercise of cold, mechanical repetition, unsympathetic to the condition that this boy was suffering. He was getting thrown into the fire. He was getting thrown into the water. Their ministry efforts were completely ineffective. Littleness of faith. Littleness of faith. Folks, this is a great warning to us this new year. What a great warning as we enter a new year. I was hoping to start off with a bang. I started off with a flu. But let's start again today. A new year. Why do we fail to break the bonds of demonic forces in our culture? The demonic strongholds. Why do we suffer defeat in spiritual battle against the forces of darkness when our Lord Jesus Christ has already declared victory over those forces? He's already won the battle, yet we fail. Why don't we win lost souls for Christ? Why don't we win people to Jesus? Why is it so seldom? Folks, it's because of the littleness of our faith. The littleness of our faith. We, we don't pray in reliance upon the sovereignty of God and the Holy Spirit to go forward before us as we witness We don't pray that people will be saved. We mechanically just try to witness and drop it. We don't express in our hearts genuine empathy, sympathy uh, for those who are perishing and going to hell. Apathy. No reliance upon God. Spiritual apathy. So it's possible that we become no more effective in winning souls, in breaking down those demonic strongholds, Then those seven sons of Siva were running into the tent trying to cast out a demon. Their ministry efforts were completely, completely ineffective. Completely ineffective. That's my my take on Matthew 17, verse 21, uh, on the fasting. But but we can't suggest from Matthew 17, verse 21, that that fasting offers us some kind of mystical power over demons. No. No. Nowhere in that passage does it tell us that. And you can't just make that up. That's not what the rest of the Bible and the Old Testament say about fasting. That is forcing our interpretation or your interpretation onto the text. You don't get that from the text. See what I'm saying? We've got to be very careful about adding to what God has written. There's a couple curses added to that, by the way, in the Bible somewhere. So we have to be cautious We have to be careful about what we read in. We're all subject to it, myself included. Um, We can't force our interpretation. However, when 
When we do feel a deep sorrow over sin, the effects of sin, the devastation of sin, the enormous cost of Christ's sacrifice, the enormous cost, the reality that souls, they're perishing folks, while we're on the sideline drinking our fill of Gatorade, it ought to really make us sick. Sick to the stomach. Folks, compassion for the lost, that, that, that ought to cause us a loss of appetite. It ought to propel us into a period of spiritual mourning, possibly even spiritual fasting. Jesus said, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Matthew 9.15 But other ideas that we come about fasting, uh, we hear about them, whether it's a mystical power, if we fast we can mystically cast out demons, or that it somehow makes uh, your decisions that you've made perfect and impeachable, um, that they can tell you for certain which boy you should marry by fasting, whatever it is, folks. They just don't originate from Scripture. They don't come from Scripture. That just kind of refreshes <clears throat> excuse me, our memories of where we were closing out last before Christmas in Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5 about the fast. Do you have any other questions? You can thank Russell Lauks, by the way, for that. Tell you, the man is processing things. He thinks about them. He comes and he asks questions. And he ought to be able to receive answers and so ought you. So I always encourage you, if there's anything you have that is a question on any messages, please always feel free to come to me. But I'm impressed, Russell. Thank you for that question. Uh, Very good. That becomes a segue. Becomes a segue to chapter 6, folks, because there are some ideas about the Sabbath day about the Sabbath day that are nearly as bogus. Even more bogus, some of them. Um, Has a pastor... Hang with me. Has a pastor or someone else ever told you that Sunday is now the Christian's Sabbath? Don't raise your hand. My bet's they never offered a proof text for that. Never took you to the Bible and showed you that. How about the notion that uh, a Roman emperor named Constantine around 312 AD made a decree that changed the day of worship for Christians from Saturday to Sunday. And that now, now uh, we don't know it, but we're actually worshiping the sun god. You ever, been, ever had that shared with you? Anybody ever told you that? We worship a sun god because we're worshiping on Sunday. I've been told that before. There are lots of erroneous ideas concerning the Sabbath and about what Christians are permitted to do on Sundays, the Lord's Day. Um, Why do most Christians worship on Sundays? And I say most. Does the Bible require that we worship on any particular day of the week? Or are are we just left to guess about it? I don't know, what do you think? Are are we just to guess about it? And is the Bible just sufficiently vague on all this stuff, uh, all these different things, so that nobody can really know for sure? It's kind of another one of those mystical things. Like like fasting, it's proposed, no one can really know what it does. Or, 
does the Bible actually give crystal clear information concerning the Sabbath and how Christians are to regard the Sabbath? Nod your heads yes on that one. Crystal clear information. And and if you are approached by someone that might call themselves a Seventh-day Adventist, you might have heard that term before, uh, and, and, and if he or she insists that you are breaking the Sabbath law, the one that we read earlier from Exodus chapter 31, our scripture reading, if they insist that we are breaking the Sabbath law by erroneously worshiping on Sundays, do you know convincingly in your heart how you would respond? Are you certain how to respond to that? If not, do you think it would be wise for you to know how a Christian should respond? We need to know. We need to know why we worship, when we worship, and trust me, how we regard the Sabbath. It's important stuff, folks. It's not peripheral information at all. I'm not, I'm not saying that you have to be able to, to so well defend uh, our view that, that you can win an argument against uh, a Sabbatarian or a Seventh-day Adventist uh, with eloquence. I'm not saying that. But you need to be confident in your heart. As you go off to college, as you move away and you go somewhere and you're approached by others, you have to be confident as to what you believe so that you're not carried away with other doctrines, folks. God wants you to know this stuff. He wants you to know where our Sabbath rest is found. So the Bible instructs us with clarity, with clarity, folks. This is real life stuff, real life stuff. It wasn't that long ago I had a gentleman uh, who, after attending one service here, uh, came to me multiple times uh, during that following week, pestering me about how our church is offending God by breaking the Sabbath commandment. And I explained to him our view, which we will share together in the next three weeks, two weeks. Third week we'll talk about the Lord's Day. And he, he would not receive it, and, and he very graciously and generously offered his services to come and teach the rest of us how we're all doing it wrong. I told him if the purpose of his presence was to convince us that in order to keep the Sabbath we have to worship on Saturdays, I said, don't bother coming back. Don't bother coming back. I know what we believe in. I know what our Bible teaches. We know together where our Sabbath rest is found. And if you don't know, the Bible wants you to know. We don't have to wonder The Bible supplies us with more than enough information, more than enough information to confront any fabricated ideas about the Sabbath. We're not alone, folks, not alone at all. As we look at our text today, Jesus had to deal with all kinds of manufactured ideas about the Sabbath, about the Sabbath day. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, this is going to be the second time now that he is challenged on the Sabbath. The other occurrence is actually back in the Gospel of John, and we'll look at that next week. But this is the second day that they're trying to pin Jesus down with the Sabbath. So over the next three weeks, 
We're, we're going to look at the opposition that Jesus encountered, the charges against him, how he responded against them, his justification in his behaviors on the Sabbath, and how it's appropriately observed today. And today we're going to see these charges levied, as I said. Next week we'll observe his response to those charges, his explanation. And then in the third week, we'll discuss the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day and the biblical reasons that most Christians, but not all, most Christians worship on Sundays. So be here for the next three weeks. Be here. And afterwards, you'll be able to explain to your whole family uh, the, the, a Christian Sabbath, how we observe the Sabbath, and you'll be able to instruct your family why, why it is so grave and so important that you not forsake the assembly of the saints. So be here. So be here. <coughs> Excuse me. In Israel, folks, the Sabbath day was one of the most dearly held ceremonies. Dearly held and with good reason. As we read earlier, under the law, Israel was bound by the law to do no work from Friday evening sunset until Saturday evening sunset, the seventh day. That was the law. The, re- the day of rest from labor, it was a pattern given by God. It was given by God even before the law. So a day of rest for man and, and beast is established not only in the law, but modeled by God during the creation account. So, so the principle here of a Sabbath, it can't be taken lightly. can't be taken lightly. In Genesis 2, verse 2, it says, By the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. The God of the universe rested. Folks, he doesn't get tired. He is all-powerful. The words rested here uh, don't mean uh, that he tired. It means that he ceased from his work. There came that day he ceased from his work. The Hebrew word is Shabbat. Shabbat, which means to cease working. It means God stopped. On the seventh day, he stopped as a pattern. He wasn't observing the ceremony of the Sabbath at that time. The Sabbath hadn't even been given yet. That would come much later at Sinai. The Sabbath law was not given to the patriarchs, wasn't given to Abraham and and Joseph and those others, and God wasn't observing the Sabbath. Nonetheless, when the law was given down to Moses, the relationship between Israel's rest their day of rest, and God's day of rest, it's inseparably established. Listen to this from Exodus 31, verse 16, our scripture reading. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. Why? It says, For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, But on the seventh day, he ceased from labor and was refreshed. The day of rest was observed by God 
to provide a pattern for the fourth commandment. It's tied together in Exodus. You can't get away from that. So if you look only at God's pattern, what he did even at creation, and if you look with that only with the law added to it, the Sabbath day for Christians, to observe the Sabbath day, at that point, if that were it, that'd be a slam dunk. Christians would observe the Sabbath. And that's what Sabbatarians say we must do. And they'll take you to God's Sabbath or Shabbat in Genesis, and then they'll place you under the law of Moses. Any problems there? But they'll place you under the law of Moses, showing you Exodus verse 31, or chapter 31. Then they're going to show you a copy of the Ten Commandments. Right? Some of you have been through this. I have. Which, which we all revere, right? Everyone reveres the Ten Commandments. And then they're going to insist that Christians still keep the other nine, right? You're like, yeah. Yeah, you bet. You're right. And they'll say, why do you break that one? Why do you break the fourth commandment? Why are you willing to insult God by breaking that commandment? And, and the best that some Christians can come up with and I've heard this, this myself, is, is, you know, but the fourth commandment is the only one that's not repeated by Jesus. You ever heard that one? That is, well, you know, Jesus didn't repeat that one. So the argument comes from silence, apparently. It's one from silence. Silence isn't a great defense. It really isn't. As we were talking earlier, you just can't argue the Bible from silence. We as Christians can do a whole lot better than that. If you're familiar with, with uh, the denomination uh, Church of Christ, they won't use instruments in their services. They sing beautifully. Sing beautifully a cappella. But they won't use instruments. Why? Because the Bible doesn't say in the New Testament that you can use instruments. It's an argument from silence. And everybody's like, what? What would that all include then? Everything that the New Testament doesn't speak about. So it's not a great defense of what we believe. The fourth commandment is given on Sinai. It had a very important purpose. It required Israel to give themselves a day of rest. It required them to give their slaves, their animals, a day off from work every single week. Gave them an opportunity to worship. But the stress is on the rest. The rest of the Sabbath. When you go through scripture, it's always the focus is on the rest. Everybody talks about, well, you've got to have a Sabbath day so you can worship God. My Bible tells me that we worship every single day. It's good to come together and worship corporately. But the idea of the Sabbath, and, and remember this for next week, the concept of the Sabbath is the rest. The rest of the Sabbath. And uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12, that, that's the second giving of the law. This is very insightful. Very insightful. God reminded Israel, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That means to keep it separate for the Lord. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, nor you, 
nor your son, nor your daughter, get this, nor your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or the sojourner that is visiting you, that stays with you. Why? Why this prohibition? The scripture answers why. It says, so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember, God says, that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? In Deuteronomy, God ties the Sabbath day of rest given on Sinai... The reason for the giving of that day of rest is the oppression that they experienced in captivity. The oppression of Egypt. They didn't get any days off. No rest. Slavery. God says that is unjust. I will not stand for that among my people, God says. He says, everybody deserves rest. Even your animals deserve a day of rest. Your servants, your slaves. God says, even at creation, I modeled a day of rest. A seventh day. And the Sabbath was made for man. It was made to be a blessing. A day of rest. But because of sinful man corrupt man, unless a law is given, unless a law is established, those who are in power will oppress those under their power. So after coming out of slavery in Egypt, God said, I I have seen your oppression. I have heard your cries out of slavery. You're not going to be like them. You're not going to be oppressors like the Egyptians. You're not going to be slave drivers. My people are not like that. You shall observe a seventh day of rest. Everyone, you, your slaves, the sojourners, your animals, everybody gets rest. That's the mercy of God, folks. The mercy of God. The entire nation, every man, woman, and beast gets rest. And for anyone who refused to observe that Sabbath rest, they then would become eleven to everybody else, because they're getting another seventh pay, right? They're earning more, making more. They're enticing others to return to that same mentality, that slave driver mentality with no rest, that God says, I saved you from. I saved you from that. You shall not return to that. So in Exodus 31, verse 15, if anybody models something that wicked, wicked like Egypt, he shall be put to death. That's how serious God took that. Listen to this. Once entering the promised land, once they were saved, there is no going back to Egypt. No going back. When you enter into the relationship with God, what do we know? He who is in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Is there any going back? Oh yeah, leeks, onions, 
Man, I, I just wish we could go back. That's the grumbling. How often do you hear that with Christians? Oh, I just miss my old friends. I just wish I could go back to the slavery. Slavery of the drink. Slavery of, of my old habits. All that I used to freely enjoy that kept me enslaved. God told Israel, you're not going back. You will not go back. You're turning from your past. So for those who were living under the law at that time, the consequence, it was stoning by death. Stoning by death. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. But the lesson's the same, folks. We put the past in the past. God takes it very serious. But there would be stoning by death for breaking the Sabbath. So if the Pharisees realized that they could convict you, could bring charges and make them stick, convict someone of breaking the Sabbath, what could they do? They could kill them. They could kill them. Death penalty. That was the cultural atmosphere in Luke chapter 6. The Pharisees are trying to ensnare Jesus into acknowledging that he made a willful violation of the Sabbath. That's what they're wanting him to do. This, folks, is what you can expect from people who claim they are zealous for God. Zealous for God. They're not truly zealous for God. They're not concerned about defending Scripture. Their passion was to defend the religion that they had fabricated. A religion they had made up that wasn't contained in Scripture. It's something that they read into Scripture. It's something that they made up along the way. You really couldn't go to Scripture and pick out what they were trying to teach but they're trying to enforce it on others, religion that they had created, and they're trying to defend it against anyone who would come in and contradict because they didn't want anybody destroying the way that they'd always done church. So a conflict emerges. This is a clash, folks, between true biblical religion, the grace of God, A Sabbath rest for the weary people. Relief for those who've been abused and treated unjustly. Healing for those who are persecuted. Healing for those who are ailing. A hand of healing. That's a picture of God's Sabbath. Juxtaposed to what man had made Sabbath. The regulations of the Sabbath, a a fabricated system of rules that actually restricted compassion towards one another. Actually prevented people from helping one another. Making unrealistic demands of people so that they could enslave Israel all over again. All over again. That's man's view of a fabricated Sabbath. And I'm not going to go into detail at this time, but the rules governing labor in Scripture, uh, excuse me, by the Pharisees, their rules that they had constructed governing labor on the Sabbath day had become so strict 
that they insisted you could not set a broken bone or even kindle a fire to keep a sick person warm. That's how strict these regulations had gotten against work. So there should be no mystery as to what Jesus meant in chapter 4 when we went through it. God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He's going to set the Sabbath straight. Because when it comes to, comes to the Sabbath, He's going to turn their whole world upside down. Look with me at Luke chapter 6, verse 1. Then I'll draw this all to a close. Let's read the passage together. <coughs> now it happened that Jesus was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and His disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and and took and ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for any to eat except for the priests alone. And he gave it to his companions. And Jesus was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath. So that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew everything they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to him, I ask you, ask, said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save life or to destroy it? What was truly the intent of the law? He's asking. And after looking around at them, he said to them, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves, meaning the Pharisees, were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Mm. Recording in Mark chapter 3 of this event says that the Pharisees, being filled with rage, even conspired with the Herodians how they might destroy Jesus. Their anger is that Jesus violated the Sabbath by acquiring something to eat and by healing somebody. That's their rage. Jesus just demonstrated compassion through healing. You think those charges are going to stick? Does, it, does that sound at all like what God intended when he provided the Sabbath rest to Israel? You can't heal. You can't take care of anyone. You can't Stoke a fire? No. But that's exactly what the Sabbath had been fashioned into through the imaginations of men. They made it up. They made it up. They fabricated the Sabbath into a day when it was not lawful to do good. It was not lawful to save a life or to heal. 
but it was perfectly acceptable to be filled with rage and seek a way to destroy an innocent man. Incrementally over time, over years and over generations, they had distorted the Sabbath that badly. A little diversion at a time. That's all you got to do to Scripture to completely destroy the intent of what God first offered. It isn't that these Pharisees didn't have Scripture to correct them. They had the prophets, Moses and the prophets. It isn't that they didn't have the Son of God available to them to guide them. The problem is that they treasured their own ideas about religion more than what God had revealed to them in his word. Then they added to it. It's kind of like Nadab and Abihu. You know, they saw what God was doing and what he was doing was good, so they got their own censers and started some strange fire and went up and said, you know, we're going to throw this in it too. What would God do? Snuffed them out. said, I never told you to do that. Never told you to do that. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 10. Folks, when it comes to biblical observance and reflection, God doesn't allow us to make religion up. We're not permitted to make religion up uh, because there comes a point in false religion that it becomes so dear to man. False religion becomes so dear to the, to the dark heart of man that, that they are willing to put to death an innocent man to preserve it, even the Son of God. That's how dangerous it is. That's what fabricated religion eventually becomes. A means of murder. A means of murder. <clears throat> That's why a pastor can't get away, folks, with merely exhorting people in the truth because people will just say, well, I'll take that and I'll add it to what I already know. Things I've already created in our minds. Uh, you have to expose that which is false because, folks, salvation hangs in the balance. Next week, we're going to see Jesus offer his defense. He's going to explain that the Sabbath day is a day where the priests of God actually work. They're allowed to work when they're offering up sacrifices, pleasing to their God. He's going to provide an exemption. Folks, the priests were not sitting around idly on the Sabbath, they had work to do. Why were they allowed to work? Why were they allowed to share something to eat? Is it only the priests who are permitted to serve God on the Sabbath? Or is everybody permitted to serve God by doing good on the Sabbath? That will be the argument next week. Is the Sabbath rest an opportunity to devise evil? Is that what Israel was to be there for? Or is it a lawful opportunity to do good to everyone who needs help? Then the following week, it's an is the opportunity to serve the Lord by doing good confined only to a specific day? Or was the setting aside of works for a day, setting aside no labor for a day, a picture of an even greater Sabbath rest that was to come? A greater Sabbath rest that the followers of Jesus Christ would enjoy. Do Christians have a Sabbath day? Or was the Sabbath day just a picture, a shadow 
of the greatness that was going to come. And the substance belongs to Christ. We'll find out from Jesus. Next week we'll continue and we'll hear the rest of the story.